Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Today's topic covers a name that is pretty well known in physics circles, but if his life had taken a different course, he may well have become a name as widely known as that of Albert Einstein or Marie Curie in the wider public consciousness. In the 1930s, Ettore Majorana contributed to the field of quantum mechanics in ways that fundamentally shaped the field and are still studied today. And then his career had taken him to a really prestigious position, and he was making a good living, and then he vanished. And what happened to him may never be known with certainty, but there are certainly many theories and even some official rulings on the matter. And we'll talk about those and why some people reject them as we get to the end of the episode. So it stays a little bit of a history mystery. And I feel for some reason compelled to confess that this is one of those episodes that I've kind of been like circling for a long time. Like I would work on it for and get a few hundred words written and then just feel strange about it and want to wander off. Because his story is complex and he's a person that unfortunately, obviously, had a lot going on that was never really recorded in terms of of where his head was at with some of the things he was working on. So heads up, there is some discussion of suicide in this episode. So if that is a problematic area that you are not comfortable hearing about in your history entertainment, uh, this may be one to skip over, or you can just listen to the first part and skip out after the second break. Ettore was born in the city of Catania on the island of Sicily, near Mount Etna, on August 5th, 1906. He was born in his family home at 251 Via Etna. And he had an impressive family. His father, Fabio Massimo Majorana, was an engineer. And his mother, Dorina Corso, was from a wealthy family. The house that they were living in was actually hers. The family also owned homes in Palermo and Rome. And Ettore's paternal grandfather was a lawyer, an economist, and a politician. His uncles were all very educated and respected, influential members of the community. They worked in fields like education and politics. This was really a family that prized hard work and study. And in addition to Ettore, the Majoranas had four other children, Rosina, Salvatore, Luciano, and Maria. Ettore was the fourth of the five. And as a child, Majorana exhibited an advanced ability to calculate mathematical problems. And he also excelled at chess. And while his education began at home, uh, for formal education, he was sent to Rome to attend the Instituto Massimo alla Terme, a Jesuit boarding school. And it's I say to his formal education, that homeschooling he got is pretty universally recognized as incredibly rigorous. His dad was really, 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 um, some would say he was quite hard on his kids in terms of, like, their education and how not just rigorous it was, but really, really challenging, and he expected them to keep up and excel. And then when he was in high school, Ettore transferred to another school in Rome, the Liceo Torcato Tasso, to finish his pre-university education. When he made that transfer in 1921, the family moved to the house that they owned in Rome so that Ettore could finish his education while still living with his family. He got his diploma two years later in 1923, and he planned to be an engineer like his father, so he enrolled in a two-year program at the University of Rome to prepare for engineering school. And then, following this plan in 1925, he started a three-year program at the School of Applications for Engineers. 
For the next two years, Majorana stayed on track with his program, although apparently hydraulics gave him a little bit of trouble. Uh, that was one area where he, he had to work a little bit harder to pass. But in 1927, he started a friendship that changed the course of his life. He met Emilio Segre. And if that name sounds familiar to our science-minded listeners, it is because he won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1959. And it was Segre who convinced Ettore Majorana that he should leave his engineering efforts behind and instead explore a different avenue, and that was physics. Enrico Fermi, incidentally, had done the same thing for Segre when he was in engineering school. When Majorana met with Fermi, who was the professor of theoretical physics at the University of Rome, one of the things that Fermi showed him was a statistical model of the atom, along with a table of calculations associated with this model. Ettore came back the next day with his own sheet of calculations and asked to look at Fermi's again. And after he compared these two sheets of calculations, he revealed that he had been checking Fermi's math. He told the professor that his own calculations were all correct. And apparently Majorana really was just trusting his own math above anyone else's, including Fermi. Yeah, there's also some theory that he was kind of working on his own way to do these calculations um, and that he was kind of just figuring out if the, the table that Fermi had used would worked as well as the one that he had been working on. And so in 1928, Ettore Majorana, who was 22 at the time, entered the physics program at the University of Rome. And he became part of the group known as the Via Penispera Boys, named for the street where the physics offices were. And this group included Emilio Segre, as well as other physicists and chemists. And up until political unrest led the group to disband in 1938, their work advanced the science of particle physics. But in doing so, they also advanced the science that enabled the development of the atomic bomb. The year after he joined the physics program, Majorana turned in his thesis, which was titled On the Quantum Mechanics of Radioactive Nuclei, when he received a rating of distinction. He decided to continue his education and to get a university teaching diploma. That was issued in 1932, and at this point, he was really considered to be a master in his field. As 1933 began, so did a new phase of Majorana's career. The Italian Research Council issued him a grant to travel to Leipzig, Germany, the nexus of theoretical physics at that time. And there, he worked alongside Werner Heisenberg, who had been leading the physics world into the realm of quantum mechanics. When Heisenberg published his paper, Quantum Theoretical Reinterpretation of Kinematic and Mechanical Relations in 1925, it changed physics completely by introducing the concept of quantum mechanics. So for a very brief and dirty reminder of exactly what quantum mechanics is, we're just going to turn to Encyclopedia Britannica rather than trying to paraphrase something potentially wrongly. It's, quote, science dealing with the behavior of matter and light on the atomic and subatomic scale. It attempts to describe and account for the properties of molecules and atoms and their constituents, electrons, protons, neutrons, and other more esoteric particles such as quarks and gluons. These properties include interactions of the particles with one another and with electromagnetic radiation, i.e. light, x-rays, and gamma rays. And that is the definition 
now today, the current modern one, because they were all sort of developing this science at the time. And if you want another insight, there is a very short BBC video on YouTube on which the painfully charming Brian Cox describes quantum mechanics in 60 seconds. I love it because I really like Brian Cox, and we will link to that in the show notes. So the point of all this is that it was a really big deal for Majorana to work with the man who had invented this whole new field of physics just a few years earlier. And he wasn't only there with Heisenberg. As we said, Leipzig was a hotbed of theory and discovery at this point, so other trailblazers in physics were there as well, including Friedrich Hund, Felix Bloch, and Rudolf Peierls. Ettore spent the first half of 1933 in Leipzig, and then he traveled to Copenhagen to spend time with Danish physicist Niels Henrik David Bohr. He returned to Germany late in the summer and then went home to Rome that autumn. Before this trip and his relatively brief career in physics so far, Majorana had already published 10 papers and been working on others. But once he got back to Rome in late 1933, he stopped writing almost entirely. He had also gotten sick while he was traveling, and he had ongoing complaints of digestive issues. Doctors chalked this up to nervous exhaustion, and it never really went away. Yeah, and he did write, but not in like a a sort of organized way that resulted in papers. He was writing his ideas down, but he really didn't have like the drive that he once did to communicate his ideas and thoughts in a way that other people could read them. It almost seems as though the young man who had trusted his own math more than Enrico Fermi's kind of got lost in 1933 as Majorana traveled around Europe and worked with these people in quantum mechanics. After that, he seemed to stop seeing his work as unique or exceptional, so much so that he really didn't feel compelled to write about it. We're about to get to a moment in physics history that really could have belonged to Majorana, but he dragged his feet and it went to someone else. But before we get to that, we are going to have a word from one of our sponsors. In 1932, the now-famous couple, Irene Joliot-Curie and her husband, Frédéric, conducted experiments that indicated that there was an unknown particle that could enter matter and expel a proton. And the couple posited that it could be a photon, but Majorana, thinking that it must be a particle with mass similar to that of a proton, intuited the existence of what we now know today as neutrons. But he's not the person who got the credit for this discovery, because even though Fermi told him he needed to write a paper on this work, he never did it. Other physicists had also been working with the same information that had been compiled by the Julio Curies, and it was James Chadwick of the UK who ultimately got credit for discovering the neutron. Majorana had just sat on his work for too long, and all of this, I mean, it's sort of making it sound like he he just didn't do it forever. But this all happened in just a few months. Yeah, I mean, this this field of physics and particle physics was really rapidly kind of exploding at this time. That's why we talked about, you know, Leipzig being the this hot point of information development. And, and similarly, Rome had a lot of stuff going on as well. And as Majorana seemed to pull himself a little bit away from physics, he started to develop interests in other fields outside of science. And he wrote a little bit about those, but again, never at the level that he had been writing papers before. So philosophy, economics, and politics all grabbed his attention to varying degrees. In 1937, a new opportunity presented itself. The University of Rome was opening a competition for new physics chairs. 
Fermi led the selection committee and strongly encouraged Majorana to go after one of these positions. And this finally got him out of the writing slump that he had been in. He turned in a paper called Symmetrical Theory of the Electron and the Positron. Ettore Majorana was not granted any of the three available positions, though. And as an aside, there is actually some nebulousness around the writing of this paper. It has been alleged that Fermi may have written the paper on Majorana's behalf based on research notes that Majorana had handy when this topic was broached between the two men. Even as that idea has floated around, it's been met with some really vehement rebuttal. Italian physicist Erasmo Riccami, who published a collection of Majorana's notes, wrote this in a 2017 article, quote, We have been told that rumors arose, e.g. in the USA, about the fact that E. Fermi himself could have written down E. Majorana's 1937 article on neutrinos on the basis of Majorana's idea. A fact like that is rejected by all people who have been studying Majorana's writing since decades for the reasons that, one, the characteristic E.M.'s sharp style appears the same in all his papers, while it is quite different from Fermi's style, Two, E.M. had practically prepared his 1937 article by 1933 as results from many documents handwritten by him. Three, Enrico Fermi, even if he recognized E. Majorana as much higher than himself in theoretical physics, was a big man and never would have acted as Majorana's secretary. (laughs) I sort of love that. Like, no, his ego would not have let him do that either. Uh, But all that aside, the reason that Majorana wasn't offered any of the positions that he had been applying for in that chair competition wasn't because his paper was poorly received. It was because his, quote, high fame of singular expertise reached in the field of theoretical physics was believed to be far beyond that of all of his other competitors. He was instead offered a different position, teaching quantum mechanics at the Naples Physics Institute, a job that he started in January 1938. Majorana moved first into the Hotel de Naples, then to the Hotel Terminus, and upgraded to more lavish digs at the Hotel Bologna not long after. Classes started on January 13th, but Ettore, who was far beyond even his peers in academia, did not really simplify his lectures for students. He really lost their attention as a consequence. His mother and his sister attended his opening lecture, and it was his mother's suggestion that got him to move to the nicer Hotel Terminus. Somewhere around this time, things seemed as though they shifted to a darker place for Majorana. He had always been really shy, and most people described him as an extreme introvert. But he became even more reclusive. He hired a nurse for his gastritis because that was still troubling him. He withdrew all of his money from the Naples bank where he had an account. And then on March 25th, he sent this note to his boss, Antonio Corelli, who was the director of the Naples Physics Institute. Dear Corelli, I have made a decision that was by now inevitable. It doesn't contain a single speck of selfishness, but I do recognize the inconvenience that my unanticipated disappearance may cause to the students and yourself. For this, too, I beg you to forgive me, but above all, for having betrayed the trust, the sincere friendship, and the sympathy that you have so kindly offered me over the past few months. I beg you also to remember me to all those I've come to know and appreciate at your institute, in particular, Sudi, But of all, I shall preserve the dearest memories at least until 11 o'clock this evening and possibly beyond. But then he also sent a telegram to Corelli telling him to disregard that note that he had just sent. And he wrote another note to his family. And aside from the date, place, and mentioned that it was for his family in the heading, it simply read, quote, 
I've got a single wish that you do not wear black for me. If you want to bow to custom, then bear some sign of mourning, but for no more than three days. After that, remember me if you can in your hearts and forgive me. But Majorana did not send that note, and we will return to how it was discovered in just a moment. Whether these two notes are suicide notes has remained up for debate, because while the English translation certainly seems to be that, he never explicitly mentions death, and the word choices that he made in Italian apparently have some ambiguity that doesn't really carry over to English in these translations. Additionally, some of the characteristics that are often associated with suicide notes in terms of handwriting aren't really present in these notes. His handwriting is really clean with very strong lines. Uh, A lot of times, handwriting analysis will report that there's some irregularity in suicide notes. There are some questions about handwriting analysis and, like, how much you can lean on it, but that is one piece of all this. Right. That's the sort of tricky thing about Majorana, and we'll we'll talk about some theories in a moment, that there is even the evidence, and I have to use the air quotes, is really just kind of like pattern recognition and trying to pick out irregularities that do or do not make sense to try to identify situations and what may have been going on. But really, it's, it's a, a very, very complex and mysterious case. But the day after these two notes were written, Majorana checked in to a hotel in Palermo, and then he wrote other notes, which sound far less grave. He first telegrammed his boss, Antonio Carelli, a note which read, Don't be alarmed. A letter follows. That letter did arrive soon after, and it read, quote, I hope that my letter and telegram have reached you together. The sea has rejected me, and tomorrow I'll return to the Hotel Bologna, perhaps traveling together with the same letter. I have, however, decided to give up teaching. Don't take me for an Ibsen heroine because the case is quite different. I'm at your disposal for further details. So even though the sound of that second note was, as I said, less grave, Corelli was still very concerned. This was still a weird series of missives to have received. And he was so concerned that he reached out to the Majorana family. And Ettore's brothers, Salvatore and Luciano, traveled to Naples immediately after the family heard from Corelli. They went to Majorana's apartment at the Hotel Bologna, and it was there that the note written to the family was found sitting on his desk. After March 26, 1938, no one had contact with Ettore Majorana. He took a steamer from Palermo to Naples on the 25th, and on the ship, he talked to a fellow academic named Strazzeri, who was a professor at the University of Palermo. But there is no record of Majorana ever disembarking from this ship. There are also even some people who think he never really got on that ship, and that was a case of uh, misidentification, that it was him. But in any case, a search began, and the Majorana family offered a reward of 30,000 lire but no trace of the physicist was found. Even Benito Mussolini, who was serving as Italy's prime minister at the time, was contacted by both the Majorana family and by Enrico Fermi with pleas to mobilize every possible means to hunt for Ettore. Fermi was very passionate in his letter to the prime minister, making it very clear that Majorana was far too important to science to not exhaust all avenues of search. He wrote, quote, I do not hesitate to declare, and this is not hyperbole, that of all the Italian and foreign scholars whom I had the opportunity to meet, Majorana is the one who, for the depth of his genius, has impressed me the most, 
Although there was a police search, no trace of the physicist was ever found. The last police note on the matter was filed on August 6, 1938. In December 1938, he was formally decreed as having resigned on March 25th, citing abandonment of duty. Yeah, they had to be very structured about how, like, these uh, academic positions were opened and ended, so they had to actually make a formal decree that he was not working there anymore. One of Ettore Majorana's papers, which he wrote for publication in a sociology periodical and not a scientific journal, was published posthumously. One of his brothers had found the paper, which was The Value of Statistical Laws in Physics and Social Sciences, among his things after his disappearance, and that was published in 1942 in the journal Scientia. And this paper in some ways marries all of those interests that we talked about him pursuing before he vanished from his life, as well as quantum mechanics. And it puts forth the idea that complex economic and social systems can be studied and investigated using the same means that one would analyze and model physical systems like atoms and subatomic particles. So, where did this gifted physicist go? We will talk about the many hypotheses and ideas about his disappearance after we have... Another word from a sponsor that keeps Stuff You Missed in History Class going. Because of the manner of Majorana's disappearance and the lack of any trace of him afterward, there have been many ideas about what exactly happened to him that have come up in the intervening eight decades. So the most obvious of these, of course, is that he died by suicide. And the notes to his family and his boss do seem to point in that direction. But family members really remained adamant that as a devout Catholic, he would not have committed the sin of taking his own life. And additionally, as we mentioned, there was no body that was ever recovered. So the suicide theory hinges on the idea that he jumped into the sea en route from Palermo to Naples. And that does make sense given that he never reappeared on shore in Naples, but there's also no conclusive evidence. And his faith also figures into another popular theory, that he ran away to live in a monastery for the rest of his days. A young man fitting his description uh, reportedly did go to the Chiesa del Guzzo Nuovo, which is a church in Naples that could be its own episode one day, and asked to be admitted into the religious order there. And that man, who may or may not have been Majorana, was told that some logistics had to be worked out first regarding lodging, and so he didn't really pursue it and he left. He thanked them and just disappeared. And a member of the clergy to whom Majorana had confessed on several occasions did indicate that while the young man did have crises of faith from time to time, suicide, based on his knowledge of Majorana, really seemed entirely outside the realm of possibility. So the theory goes that he found a monastery outside of Naples that would take him. So both of those and many other ideas all hinge on this idea that Majorana saw the destructive power in the work that was being done in theoretical physics, and that it drove him away from the field that he so excelled in, and that that left him either with no desire to live or no desire to participate in society. Yeah, I mean, like I said, there aren't a lot of of notes written about, like, what was going on internally with him. So it's all conjecture. But certainly those were some things that were were happening. Um, Another idea that has been popular over the years is that he may have actually been murdered by Nazis. 
Majorana had, as you may recall, worked closely with Werner Heisenberg, who eventually worked on Germany's nuclear weapons project during the Second World War, using some of the science and technology that they had developed together. So proponents of this theory believe that because Majorana became something of a loose end in relation to Heisenberg's work, that he was simply eliminated. To complicate matters even more, as we've often discussed in previous episodes involving missing persons, there are almost always eyewitness accounts claiming that they have seen the person in question. And in the case of Majorana, he was allegedly spotted at a convent in Portici, Italy, on April 12th. That was two weeks after he disappeared. He reportedly came there and asked to join the religious order, Many years after his disappearance in the 1970s, a number of sightings were reported in Argentina. Yeah, there are some weird things where he is reportedly seen, I'm not even including all of the alleged sightings, uh, at convents, and that he wanted to to basically live in a convent rather than in a monastery. Again, these are all theoretical, and people have their own ideas about why he may have done that, Um, but we just don't know. So in case you're like, hey, you said monastery once and convent later, both have played into these rumors. One of these sightings, reported by Chilean physicist Carlo Rivera Cruchaga, indicated that he had met a woman named Mrs. Talbert who claimed to know Ettore Majorana in Buenos Aires. And this took place in 1951. And that woman, who told him that Majorana was friends with her son, identified Ettore in a photo from a physics book that Rivera had with him. Rivera returned to Buenos Aires in 1954 and intended to follow up on the matter. He was hoping to get an introduction but Mrs. Talbert was no longer living there that he could find. In 1961, on another trip, Rivera said that a waiter saw him working on physics equations and mentioned another scientist who would sometimes come in and work on similar problems at the table. That waiter also identified Ettore Majorana as that man that he was talking about in a photo that Rivera had with him. So these rumors that he started a new life in South America had been in play for years, and those sightings seemed to back it up. Then in 2008, another piece of evidence emerged, and that year, a man named Francesco Fasani called in to the Italian news program Who Has Seen It? And he claimed to have a photo of Ettore Majorana, although he knew him as Mr. Beanie. And Fasani said that the man that he met in Venezuela in 1955 was in his 50s and was very shy and refined in his manners. So that all seemed to line up with the man that people knew as Ettore Majorana. He was about the right age that he would have been, and the the shy refinement was also something people associated with him. And based on this information, this case was actually reopened in Rome in 2011. And the photo was submitted to the authorities and analyzed. And it was determined that 10 points of facial identification in the photo coincided with those of a known photo of Majorana. And it was also determined that he had significant hereditary compatibility with photos of his father, Fabio, who he looked very much like. So they used a a picture of his father as an elder version to compare it to. In early 2015, the Rome public prosecutor closed the case, having concluded that Majorana had indeed lived in Venezuela in the 1950s, having gone there apparently of his own will. And thus, there was neither suicide nor homicide to investigate. That ruling hasn't been accepted by everyone, though, including Antonio Zikiki, the president of the Ettore Majorana Foundation and Center for Scientific Culture. He really stands by the belief that Majorana had a religious crisis and spent the rest of his days in a convent or a monastery. 
In any case, even if the ruling of the Roman public prosecutor is accurate in its assessment, there are still so many unanswered questions. Majorana's motives for dropping out of his life are still a matter of pure speculation, and how his life ultimately ended remains a complete mystery. Fermi once described Majorana to Italian physicist Giuseppe Cocconi, Quote, because, you see, in the world there are various categories of scientists, people of second and third rank who do their best but do not go very far. There are also people of the first rank who make discoveries of great importance that are fundamental for the development of science. But then there are the geniuses like Galileo and Newton. Well, Ettore was one of these. Majorana had what no one else in the world has, but unfortunately he lacked what is instead common in other men, plain good sense. And I should point out that that quote, which gets used a lot in discussion of Ettore Majorana, is not actually something directly quoted. Uh, most of the time, people are actually quoting Cocone's relay of that information. So just in case you look it up and you're like, hey, uh, that's what's up. I'm so fascinated by Ettore Majorana, as I know a lot of people are. Again, this always comes up anytime someone uh, prematurely either dies or decides to completely check out of life, as he seems to have done. Um, there was so much amazing stuff he could have done and achieved, but uh, we don't, we'll never know. Just sort of sad. Um, and I, you know, no one ever knows what might be going on in the mind of someone who makes choices like that. So uh, it is all speculative, which I think is part of why people become kind of obsessed with his story. I have a way more upbeat listener mail. Great. This is from our listener, Kyle who knows the key to my heart, which is to write about delicious life hacks you can do and also put it on a Disney postcard, which features the Hatbox Ghost, my favorite thing in the Haunted Mansion. (laughs) Uh, And he writes, yeah, it's so cute. Uh, I'm keeping this one forever. He writes, Holly and Tracy. Uh, He was, uh, after cheering for my wife, daughter, and son in the Princess Half Marathon, I enjoyed the former podcast subject, Haunted Mansion. One, congratulations to your family for running. I have done that race many times and have loved it. I hope they had a great time. And then uh, Kyle goes on to say, I wanted to add to your podcast on the history of vodka. I use vodka and seltzer water instead of water in my fried batter. With the lower evaporation point, tempura comes out extra crispy. Yum. My daughter Amy and I love your show. I am, I think it says a through hiker, um, because this is one of those cases where a postcard got uh, a little bit obscured by postal markings. And he says he has listened to them, to all of the episodes since the beginning, and keep up the good work, Kyle. Kyle, I love this tip. I'm going to use it and see how it works out. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, we've gotten lots of good um, uh, little notes about vodka, some more from from veterinary offices and people who work in medicine. But this one I wanted to read because it's like a a tip anyone can use, and it sounds fun and delicious. So so if you're Mm -hmm. making tempura, use Kyle's thing. I'm going to presume that his mix is like a 50-50 on vodka and seltzer water. Um, And just substitute that for your water in your fried batter. That sounds phenomenal. I'm in. Uh, If you would like to write to us, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also everywhere on social media as Missed in History. And you can visit our website, MissedInHistory.com, to see every episode of the show that has ever existed, all put together in one place for your listening pleasure. Uh, If you would like to subscribe to the show, that sounds like a fabulous idea, in my opinion. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Stuff 
Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 